This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Lit podcast. Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. And I'm Gary Shriver, and welcome to the How to Love Lit podcast. Today, we truly are looking at some very complex and profound ideas as we get into the weeds of chapters one through four of Lord of the Flies. Today's episode is entitled The Paradise, the Pig, and the Beast. There are so many levels of meaning to sort out as you look at this book. Uh, It's difficult to really think about how to explore all of them in a short amount of time. Last week we talked about how this book really borrows heavily from mythology, especially Greek mythology. It also borrows significantly from biblical texts, at least in an archetypal sense. And however, there is an important and perhaps a self-evident sense that this is allegorical in the simple political sense. Let's look at that one first, introduce it, and then we'll get into the most complicated later. Sounds good. To begin with, I think it's very relevant to have this fresh on our mind. Golding struggled with how to organize humanity in a political structure that would harness and subdue what he truly believed was what political science called, quote-unquote, the natural man. And although this is going to feel like a tangent, bear with us because I think it's going to really help the book make sense if you want to think about this book in a political way, which is a very good way to look at it. And in fact, if you only look at this book as a political book, I think there's a lot uh, to understand about humanity from this book. So it starts off with Thomas Hobbes, another Englishman, born in 1588. So that's a long time, 1588. That shows you how old this theory is. 
And there's uh, a thing that Hobbes calls the natural man. And for Hobbes, the only natural authority on earth is the authority that a mother has over a child. Everything else, according to his way of looking at the world, is a human construct. So he suggested that even though as we get older, some of us will get bigger than others, we are all actually equal in a, in a physical way. And if we really wanted to, we could figure out how to take out another person. So for example, disclosure, I'm only 5'1". That's a very small thing. That's I like, think you're stretching 5'1". Uh, uh, 155 in centimeters. Gary's 6 feet. That'd be 180 in centimeters. So that's a big difference. Having said that, if I have a gun and I'm conniving enough, that physical difference doesn't really matter. So he's going to suggest that that's how adults work. We're all equal in our ability to threaten each other as uh, we are all capable and often willing to kill each other. And so there is actually, according to Hobbes, no natural authority or order on our lives. That's true. Um, Hobbes argues that we either organize ourselves successfully into some form of government or we revert to our natural state, which ultimately leads us to doom. For example, like Cain and Abel. Um, through any number of modern totalitarian regimes have been played out in the 20th century, we have evidence of that. And, and Hobbes further argues three additional things that apply in this book. Uh, in the first one, he says, we will compete, perhaps violently, to secure the basic necessity of life. Secondly, we will challenge each other out of fear. And third, we will seek glory for its own sake, but also for protection so that no one will further challenge our power. So if you pay attention, Golding is going to illustrate all three of these ideas very, very vividly over the course of the book. A couple of other, um, I guess it's Hobbesian, is what you'd say, ideas. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, he doesn't think, and I think this is really important to understand, he doesn't think that everyone is selfish or cowardly or vain, but that some of us are. And that is enough to wreak havoc on everyone. It just takes one fly in the ointment. Well, I've heard that before. Also, he's going to say that man in his natural state, and this is something to really think about, cannot make wise judgments. Because when you're in this natural state of chaos, so to speak, it's almost impossible to determine what actually is right or wrong or what is just or unjust because in that natural state these things really there aren't any rules so how can you really determine or sort out these things and this is the kind of mental chaos that we're going to see develop kind of gradually through the story so that brings us back to the political nature of this book and again that's not the only dynamic we'll explore other dynamics of the book interpretively but this is the first we'll look at uh, anyway, we'll get back to the political nature of the book and where we left off right at the beginning of the story. We've met Ralph and Piggy, and they immediately recognize the need to create and organize a government. We'll put that in quotation marks. And uh, being good English schoolboys, they choose democracy as the most logical and virtuous method of self-government. And of course, it's at this point that we're going to be introduced to the first 
I guess maybe second symbol of the book. The island itself is a symbol if you want to think of it as this Garden of Eden. But the the conch is a real important symbol, and we're going to follow that symbol the whole way through because it's going to ultimately symbolize law and civilization. Now, a couple things that the boys point out in the story, pretty, pretty, um, I guess from the very beginning, uh, is that it's beautiful and it came from nature. So almost to say that law and civilization is indeed something, if you want to call it divine, it's something natural, but not in the sense of natural man, but the sense of from nature. Uh, it's, it's almost a theological idea if you want to look at it kind of that way. But it's also valuable. And Piggy begins by saying, oh my gosh, that's so expensive. Do you know what that is he worth? Do you rec- He it. recognizes the value of it. And he also sees the power in it because it's through this conch that he says, this is how we're going to harness all these people into one location. Well, what's interesting about that that I want to point out, there's a psychological thing at play here it's called reification reification is where you take a thing that's not a thing and you make it a thing (laughs) so you take an abstract idea which in this case the abstract idea is we've got to organize ourselves and what do they do well the central authority with which we will organize ourselves around is going to be this random shell and everybody will look at it and go yeah yeah that's right we're gonna that's it the conscious now reified and so Strange things can be reified, and cultures depend on that. I mean, we have millions of complex reifications as humans. One of the most simple examples would be traffic lights and how people just will voluntarily stop on red and go on green unless you live in our city, then they reverse that. I was going to say, they don't do that in Memphis. but <laughs> No, but anyway, that's reification. All right, so when we look at it that way, um, that would make them kind of the leaders of this political organization okay so um if you want to get simplistic about it and we should for the sake of time ralph is your democratic leader a kind of bumbling awkward leader who ineffectively tries to organize the people piggy is his advisor and his bureaucratic executive branch uh, as he seeks to try to organize and track the names of the little ones which he fails at and jack when he comes in represents um, in a political sense totalitarianism he has no regard for democratic procedure he undermines the rules constantly even from the beginning and he's bitter that ralph is elected leader uh, a role that he wanted so he shows us uh he he shows us already bossing the choir boys and immediately designates them as hunters he is also immediately taking responsibility for keeping the fire going at the beginning. In other words, he makes a political promise claiming to be the provider for the group. Ugh. And of course, as everyone learns the hard way, usually, you should never trust anyone, be it a friend, boss, coworker, or a politician who's going to come in with this idea of being the father provider, assuming you allow me to be your total controller. The uh, political word for that is demagogue. Yeah, I think that that way of reading the book is interesting and it's certainly understandable in light of the fact that he just got out of World War II. And it should not be overlooked that the book is framed as a story about boys who are in what is some sort of World War III, which is a nuclear one. So we can presume that this is designed to be very political from 
the very beginning. And of course, from a literary perspective, everyone at the time was supposed to clearly see the total irony that this is an entire world at war. I have trouble with my R's and L's. <laughs> we have a world at war. World war is hard to say. It is. And so you're going to drop off these children, the most innocent of humans, uh, and you drop them off on an island. And the first thing that they're going to ultimately do, and maybe this is a bit of a spoiler, is they're ultimately going to engage in warfare. But then when they get rescued, they're going to be rescued by adults involved in taking them back to what? To warfare. And I want to digress here for just a moment uh, because, interestingly enough, there was a similar experience during World War II when London was being bombed uh, in the Blitz in 1940. The English children were rounded up from London and sent northward to live uh, away from the bombing. So there is you know, little precedent historically here with the, the English regarding this. But anyway... Um, the second level of, of reading the book, and one we're really not going to focus on because even though I'm fascinated uh, by psychology, I don't find this particular way of reading Lord of the Flies super interesting. Uh, and, and that is reading it from a psychological or Freudian framework. We'll leave that to people who have to write their dissertations and draw out those kind of things. There's a lot you could say. Oh, there's thousands of interpretations on what this book means. And we're here to talk about... Moving on. Yes, moving on. Anyway, uh, Freud argues that there are three parts of the personality, the id, ego, and superego, not very new to very many people. So uh, uh, the id being the untamed side as maybe personified by Jack. Then you have the superego, which is the rules side as personified by Piggy. And then the ego, which balances the extreme demands, the other two, which could be personified by Ralph, if you want to do that. And then... There's all kinds of Jungian archetypes that we're not going to dredge up yet either. So, of course, uh, I know we're going to get ahead of ourselves, but if you want to go down that psych road, keep that in mind because there's going to be this strong polarity always between Jack fighting Ralph. So if Mm -hmm. you want to think of that as id versus, what, superego, you know, that's, uh, or ego, you, you can play that out in, in various ways, and you, I guess you could really talk and write a lot about that, but we're not going to. And I would want to say one last thing about that, since you brought that up in the characters. The id referring to the personality part that wants immediate gratification now, the ego being the part of the personality that looks towards the future and responsibility. So finally... And what I think is a deeper and really a much more complex way to read the book, uh, and in my view, it really informs, honestly, all these other interpretations, we have to think of this book more basic because he wrote it very simplistically as a mythological moral allegory. Now, this way of looking at the book focuses on the conflicts between good and evil. It kind of encourages philosophical or maybe even theological interpretations as to the nature of man, although he is not going to simplify it as being man is all good or man is all evil or all men have evil or all men have good. It's a much more nuanced perspective. Uh, And the reason I think this informs the other interpretations is that if man is who Golding is ultimately going to present him to be, and and I think he's going to make a very strong case for his worldview, 
then this is going to affect the psyche. It's going to affect your governmental structure uh, in, in this sort of understanding because what we're talking about is really uh, what is the base problem of evil. And that's man versus man, man versus society, man versus himself. It plays out in every one of these dimensions. So how do you manage the human problem of evil and understand where the hell it comes from? And I use that pun deliberately because, you know, hell, but um bump <laughs> evil. It's hard to turn hell into a pun. It did. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, well... Uh, let's get back to the story. Uh, but before we get back to the story, let me say one last thing about Hobbes that, that really needs to be laid out because it ties in with everything Golding's discussing. Um, Hobbes gives us the idea of the social contract. The social contract is the spoken or unspoken, many times, idea that as an individual, I'm willing to limit some of my personal freedoms and privileges in order to support the group and help the group prosper and thereby grant me more prosperity and safety and things of that nature. So we, we agree on many levels to try to organize ourselves uh, to live in the same space. All right. Well, let's see how far they can get organized because that's exactly what they're trying to do uh, in chapter one. You have, you know, like we already said, we have these Ralph and and Piggy, their first two guys. Then we're going to be introduced to Sam and Eric, who are these twins, which they come up, they're kind of a side thing. Like Ultimately, they're going to be, if you were to see the book in writing, by the end of the book, they've merged their names together because yes. twins, they're Sam one person. Yeah. yeah, you forget they're two different people. <laughs> so we're introduced to them, and then, of course, we're introduced to this, just an array of little bitty kids, six years old, which I cannot even imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, that basically all they do is eat and play in the sand and and poop and, and yes, cry and cry. Uh, feces is a is a motif in this book. Nice. I'm, I'm glad you didn't bring that up randomly. <laughs> no, 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 it's a thing. And then, of course, most importantly, and of course, most obvious, obviously, you have these choir boys, and they kind of look mean from the beginning. They're wearing black coat cloaks they do have a silver cross so they've been you know religiously trained to some degree and their leader is jack and he has red hair i don't know if you can say it's devilish i don't know if you want to do that or not some people do i think it may be i don't know but anyway his face is freckled and crumpled and it's described as being ugly without silliness which is a horrible thing to I say know. About. what does that look like is that like know. this double level of ugly i guess and he has you know blue eyes and he looks like he's ready to be angry at every moment so um of course piggy is immediately scared of intimidated by yes him. and he won't get their names even though that's his job to, to do all that and uh of course ralph I don't know if he immediately sees him as an antagonist or a, um, a power struggle, but he attempts to ingratiate himself by throwing Piggy under the bus immediately. He's mean. He exposes him. Jack calls him fatty, and he says, oh, he's Piggy. And they bond by being cruel right mm-hmm. off the bat. And, of course, there they go, and we're introduced to Maurice, Roger, Bill, Robert, Harold, Henry, and finally, the last of the choir boys is Simon. All right, so we do that, and then we settle in for this meeting, and they're going to try to pick a leader. 
They are. And this is where the leaders emerge, which are Ralph and Jack. And they, again, we've already established, represent two different leadership styles. Um, what's eventually going to happen? Jack will stand up and demand the leadership role. Uh, Ralph will challenge him by appealing to the popularity of the group and saying, let's have a vote. And so they vote. And Ralph is the consensus leader. So there's your expression of democracy. And um, so that's how they're going to resolve that. And, of course, it's interesting that the book highlights that the reason why they voted for him is because he had the conch. In other words, the symbol of law, civilization, order. You know, he was the herald. Which, again, I want to point out is amazing how quickly something like a seashell becomes a symbol of power. And anything can do that. Anything can do that. So the first thing they do is, and this is how we're going to end chapter one, Simon, Jack, and Ralph, Piggy wants to go, but they don't let him, have decided that they're going to explore the island, and it's magical. They love it. Oh, it is. Ralph exclaims in the book, this belongs to us, and they savored the right of domination. That's awful. He describes it as icing on a pink cake. And it's, there's pink clips, and there's the word mirage, and there's fantasies, uh, even the kind of the shattered rocks because they throw something over. It isn't really uh, threatening in any way. And I think this uh, is important to understand only because it highlights the unconsciousness that they have of their own reality. Right. They're very delusional. Piggy's the only one that knows we're in danger and nobody is coming. And he says that. And no one listens. Mm-hmm. No. So they're coming back um, from this, I don't know, little adventure. Simon brings up the fact that they're hungry. And then all of a sudden they're going to see the pig. And this is interesting because this book is, if you want to frame it this way, is framed around nine hunts so we're going to have these nine hunts and we're going to watch the progression of these boys the structure of this book is going to provide for this gradual revelation of insight that golding wants to give us so he's bringing us along through the plot and that's how he's going to kind of unfold his main idea this gradual awakening of consciousness that we're going to start to see Uh, and he's using pigs and other beasts to kind of to get us there. So this is hunt number one, and it's a fail. It is a fail, and Jack fails, and he makes excuses for his failure, and he's embarrassed and ashamed by his failure. And in his uh, inner psyche, he's determined that he'll never fail again hunting the pig. And I kind of think, maybe I'm, maybe it's girly of me, that he just didn't want to kill the pig. Well, I, I think that's easy to see that in the book, in the reading that part of it. All right, so we're finishing up chapter one with nothing but fruit. (laughs) That's right. So they go on uh, in chapter two, and we're going to really, we're going to have another meeting. They're going to have, they've come together. They've got, um, they've got uh, this information about what's on the island, and we have a struggle again. Jack's going to slam his knife up, and then we have this struggle about who's going to get to talk and that concept becomes well if you have the conch then you get to talk and chapter two there are several things that go on in chapter two but the main content is the conch and the power that it it possesses 
and uh, those who are struggling to get their opportunity. And there are rules for the cons. Rule number one being that whoever possesses the cons gets to talk and everybody else has to listen, except that rule does not apply when Piggy has the cons. Jack will not follow the rules when it's Piggy's turn. So we're seeing that the... And, and Piggy's already locked into the idea that the conch is where the power is. I have to have it so that I can talk, so that I can be heard, and have credibility and authority. So that really does occupy most of Chapter 2. Well, and the fact that Piggy's going to say right out, nobody knows where we are. And, of course, he's really the only one that's willing to think about that. The other thing that I think is really uh important to talk about the chapter two is we're going to introduce this idea of the beastie so there's a small little boy they call him a shrimp of a boy six years old and on one side of his face was blotted out of a mulberry colored birthmark so he's gonna want to ask a question he holds out his hand for the conch piggy's gonna kneel beside him and then piggy's gonna explain what the boy's concerned about and the boy wants to know what they're going to do about the snake thing. So here you go with that very archetypal and to me very different symbol, the snake. And I don't know if this is the biblical snake or if it's just the archetypal snake, but there is a snake on the island. And the snake, we want to point out, hasn't even been seen. It's only in the minds of the little ones at this point. And so he's going to say, uh, there's a snake thing ever so big he saw it and of course they don't know where he saw it and they're going to give it a name and he's going to call it a beastie he said and then of course the big boys are going to try to say no you can't have a beastie on a little island and they're trying to you know i guess logically well they're trying to assuage the fears of the little boys because as the little boys express their fears fear grows inside the big boys and they become very aware that uh, I'm trying to speak reality <laughs> to myself. Which, and I think we're going to, because, like I said, this is a book about revelation and the beast is part of that revelation. I think it's important to know that the little boys have the beastie too. And it starts in their minds, in their consciousness or subconsciousness, in their dreams. And it's in these this dream in their dreams at first that they really uh, find their fear. Well, and interestingly enough, before we jump into the beastie thing, it comes on the heels of Ralph talking about the island. Ralph is saying, "This is our island. It's a good island. Until the grown-ups come and come and get us, we'll have fun. We want to have fun, and we want to be rescued." My father is in the navy. He wins over the confidence of the group. With these statements, they even applaud him when he gets done giving his speech. And then you've got this beastie in the background undermining his narrative and undermining his story and his authority at this point. And, of course, the outside reader knows this is crap. <laughs> None of this is... I mean, he's just talking. Right, right. And yeah, and you get that from Golding's words that, uh, that Ralph is talking to himself, trying to talk himself into some positivity. So the next chore in Chapter 2 is build the fire. Right, so because now they've come up with this idea that we're going to need to be rescued. I do want to point out a very ironic line. They're arguing about the need to carry this conch and la-di-da-di-da. And Jack is going to concede, I agree with Ralph. We've got to have rules and obey them. After all, we're not savages. We're English. (laughs) Well, at one point Jack says, 
we'll have lots of rules, like he says it with great excitement, and we'll punish those who don't follow them. And of course, the every American's going to notice Jack, Jack's next line, because he says, and the English are the best at everything. Oh, <laughs> indeed, indeed. Okay. So anyway. So to end up, <laughs> after all that, in chapter two, um, Piggy gets the conch, and he gives his speech, and he ends up the chapter scolding them, and he says, I got the conch, just you listen. The first thing we ought to have made was shelters down there by the beach. It wasn't half cold down there in the night, but the first time Ralph says fire, you goes howling and screaming up here this here mountain like a pack of kids. How can you expect to be rescued if you don't put first things first and act proper? So he gives everybody a scolding for not doing first things first and the proper things. And he really... I mean, I'm sure this is very psychological, and I can't speak to it very much. But I, I do think it's it's obvious that he's the only one that has any concept of time or even the need to project into the future. True. and Or a sense of danger. Yeah, that's true. I find that interesting. All right. And we end Chapter 2 just with a little aside. It's kind of sad. Um, the boys are going to look around, and the boy the with the bookmark is gone. Mm-hmm. And... He's never going to be spoken of again. Yes, and they can't account for him, and it just chills the group. <laughs> I know. It, As it should. Yeah. They care, they I do. guess. All right, chapter three, we're going to see some sort of passage of time. And we notice the passage of time in a couple of ways. Uh, mostly, it's by the hair. Mm-hmm. And the hair is a little symbolic. I know there's so much symbolism, but it's a myth. But... Uh, as their hair grows and they get dirtier, you're going to see this descent mm-hmm. uh, into savagery. So pay attention um, to the fact that they are um, getting their hair is getting considerably longer than it has, and showing that he's um, getting more savage. Of course, he's made his own weapon now. He's not fighting or hunting with the knife anymore. He's got a sharpened stick about five feet long. Well, chapter three is titled Huts on the Beach, and what we begin to see is the diverging leadership styles in Ralph and Jack. Ralph wants to be busy building shelters. Jack wants to be busy hunting. And there is a tension that's really going to emerge in their leadership priorities. Ralph wants to be rescued, and Jack becomes fixated on glory. And I just want to say... uh... Well, I better not say that. Oh, I'm okay. <laughs> so Jack is going to go uh, hunting by himself, and this is kind of hunt number two. He's going to rush out and try to snatch up his spear. Um, he's going to try to basically try and fail again to kill this dang pig. And of course, he's taking all this time, and this is the time suck, and this is the problem that Ralph has with it because he. It looks like, to, from Ralph's perspective, that he's just trying to not work. Right. And, of course, from Jack's perspective, he's trying to provide for everybody. Yeah. So you see hunt versus shelters. Mm-hmm. All right. So um, the kids come running out. The little ones are going to come out. The beastie, the beastie, that kind of a thing. Um, they're going to say you can feel it in the forest. Uh, but, of course, there's nothing there. It's nothing. And at this point, the beast is nothing but a feeling. But even uh, the older boys acknowledge that 
No, 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 they feel it too. Right. And it's interesting how the group hysteria is slowly growing about this. Right. So we're going to have um, this argument about what to do about the beastie, what to do about hunting versus building shelters. They do manage to make some shelters. Uh, and then we're going to kind of chop off the dialogue. And in my book, there's a little dot. I don't know if everybody's book is like that. Because we're going to switch completely to Simon's point of view. So this book basically is from Ralph's point of view from start to finish, except for a few times when the narrator deliberately cuts the narration and he's going to switch perspectives completely. Now Simon, from an archetypal standpoint, is clearly like this Christ um, figure. figure. Thank you. A Christ figure, and, and for various ways, but... You know, one of the ways is he's very meditative, and he uh, and I guess if you want to see it as any kind of religious leader, uh, prophet, but not the kind of prophet that warns like the way that Piggy's hollering and no one's ignoring him. Uh, but he's going to go off into this woods, into this meditative place, and the woods for him is almost like a church, and he finds truth there, he finds solace there, and we're kind of going to see uh, this evolution in um in simon and he's also benevolent he on his way to the forest he's gonna stop and help the little children so he does good deeds all he's the time helping ralph build the huts yeah that's true okay. and he and he the, the they're running out of fruit so so the little six-year-olds they can only get the fruit that's on the lowest level so simon is you know helping them get to the other level and he squats down of course he observes everything that's going on, um, and uh, he's just soaking. I guess you want to say he he can soak in the environment. He can soak in the nature in a way that the other boys really can't. And why that's important, we'll find out maybe a little bit later on. I would guess so. Is that a foreshadowing? Uh, I guess it is. Okay. <laughs> All right, last chapter, chapter four. Painted faces and long hair. Hmm. Yeah. Um, what about this Roger guy that shows up? He's just mean. Well, he shows up and he's gloomy and he has this unsocial remoteness. Those are the words used to describe him. Well, what happens is they're on the beach and you've got the little ones and Henry is the big biggest of the little ones so uh they're out making castles and just playing i guess in the sun like little kids are gonna do and roger and maurice are gonna come out of the forest and maurice who's identified as a bully back home um they're gonna kind of pick on the little ones for really no kind of good reason but then roger takes it a step farther and starts throwing stuff at them clusters of nuts some of them as big as rugby balls which that's big coconut size yeah but the author points out that he throws them on purpose missing so he's trying to harass but he's really not trying to hurt he's just trying to scare i don't know what that means i guess that's his starting point right. that's his starting points of, of meanness that's his foreshadowing yeah so it's gonna be all this meanness, uh, or faux meanness, I guess at this point, is interrupted because um, Jack is going to make a huge and important discovery. He's going to figure out 
how to get their pigs. Yes, and what's an interesting part of that before we get to the pig, Jack, is going to make a mask. Right, because he figures out that they're seeing him. They're mm -hmm. not smelling him like he thought. So if he he wants to sneak up on the pigs, he's got to be disguised. Right, and so he goes about the process of creating this mask out of the materials laying around on the ground. But what's really significant, uh, what Golding says about Jack at this point, is that when he puts the mask on, the wildness comes over him. He is, in quotations here, he is liberated from shame and self-consciousness, which is going to be a dangerous thing. Well, it even goes on to say that the mask is compelling him. Mm -hmm. So whatever, I don't know, whatever he feels, the security of the mask, it liberates him to be somebody that he wouldn't have been as the little boy wearing the cloak and the cross around his chest. Well, psychologically, it's very simple. It's what anonymity does. When people think they're being safe from being identified for their actions, then they feel a lot more uh, at liberty for their behaviors to come out. All right, so we're going to see um, they're going to climb out. They're going to trot around. Their hair is plastered on. Their hair is getting long. Poor Piggy is the only one who can't grow any hair. Which means maybe he's incapable of savagery. I don't know. Also, he's the only one that's obsessed about time. He's going to say, I've been thinking about a clock. We can make a sundial. And, of course, they all make a joke about that. Yeah, and a TV, too. Right. And he's like, no, you have to have way too much metal for that. So he <laughs> so doesn't have much of a sense of humor no, either. No, he's awful. I mean, it says... Piggy was a boar. His fat, his asthma, which is, a, he can't pronounce things right, asthma, and his matter-of-fact ideas were dull. But uh, this makes him the, the outsider, mm -hmm. I guess. All right. Well, their next chore, um, is we have to go back to this whole idea of building a fire. And now we have a big, huge tension that occurs as we get ready to end Chapter 4, and that is they see a ship. And the ship is way out there in the distance. And about the time they see a ship, Ralph realizes the fire has gone out. Well, yes, and we didn't make much of this, but at that beginning of meeting, if you remember, Jack had said, oh, I'm going to do all this. I'm going to mm -hmm. provide. I'm going to do the fire. And, of course, he didn't. And he went off hunting, and everyone does what they want to do, which is, you know, expected. And now when the ship comes, there's no fire, and they're all mad. Well, as, as they should be, and they're beyond mad because Golding does a great job of really describing uh, their, 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 their despondency or Ralph's despondency over that because seeing a ship and then seeing it leave really deepens the impact of the fact that we're stuck and we're in trouble. And, of course, Jack is very flippant about it because Jack is all excited about the pig that he has just killed. So there's the more tension here in the types of the leadership. And so what you get is this, this standoff between Ralph and Jack. Uh, and Ralph simply cannot overlook the fact that Jack bypassed an opportunity to get rescued. And Jack is not going to let go of the glory of, of killing the pig. No, he's all mad because he's not getting... And this is, of course, hunt number three. So by hunt number three, they're successful. And the reason why they were able to get the pig is because they pulled every all the resources off the mountain. So had there been people up on that mountain, he may not have gotten the pig. So he made a choice, really. And 
the choice is obviously the wrong one at this point. And it creates such tension that the chapter ends with Ralph deciding we're going to have another meeting. Yeah. And so he gets the conch. They get ready to call. And it says, Ralph watched them envious and resentful. And he says, I'm calling an assembly. With the conch, I'm calling a meeting, even if we have to go into the dark, down on the platform when I blow it now. Well, he does. And they end up doing that. Um, But before we do that, I do want to point out a couple of lines that I think... Or I would like to hear your comments on. First of all, when Ralph, I'm sorry, when Jack kills that pig, it says this, killing him, imposing his will on it, taking away its life was like a long, satisfying drink. So it's toxic. I mean, I mean, in, a, in an intoxicating kind of way, the effect that this has had on him. And of course, the other boys feel it too, because they they work themselves up in this frenzy, the kind of frenzy that you would expect Hobbes to expect. And they, they're going to, of course, Jack hits Piggy. I mean, he resorts mm-hmm. to violence immediately. He went from the pig well, to Piggy. And which is really interesting. Jack gets really embarrassed when Ralph shames him. And so what does Jack do? He turns around and punches Piggy. I mean, that's, that's terrible displacement of his... Well, it is. And Piggy's glasses fly off and they break, so now he can't see anymore. Uh, And then, of course, it ends uh, with them cooking. And they have to have, by the way, Piggy's glasses, because that's the only Mm -hmm. way they know... Jack figures out that's how... It's going to take this technology, and, of course, Piggy's the only one that any technological anything, uh, takes his glasses and he's going to start it with the fire. Uh, But then they, they circle around the campfire... And they start eating. And you even see Ralph. It says he accepted a piece of half raw meat and gnawed on it like a wolf. So he's eating in an an animalistic way. It's not cooked and he's eating it like an animal would eat it. And it says, it talks about this rage. It's elemental. It's awe-inspiring. It's some sort of otherworldly experience that's involved with the euphoria of having taken life Mm -hmm. so i don't know kill the pig cut her throat bash her in that's the chant as we see ralph march away okay well that wraps up the first four chapters to sum it up the boys have landed on the island they have begun to assess their state and organize for survival Um, the power struggles and the factions are beginning to emerge And that's where we'll stop and we'll jump into the the next four chapters in the next episode and find out how all that develops. So um, I want to point out that we are being listened to on six of the seven continents. Thank you. (laughs) We're so So, excited about that. Yes. So tell your friends about us. Check us out on Facebook, on Instagram. We have a website, howtolovelitpodcast.com. And I want to say there's some listening guides there. If you're a teacher and you're trying to um, follow along and you need some guidance there, or if you're like my dad and who likes to answer the questions just to see if he can, take a look at it and see if there's anything you can use. They're there for that reason. And you can find us on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Google Music, Stitcher, the interwebs we are out there everywhere so uh, come along for the ride thank you and peace out
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 